This episode is dedicated to Stu Anderson, Alan Lee, Jason B. Cox, and James Chambers for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw podcast and project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, such as classic fight commentary, transcripts of interviews, building a liberation martial arts online curriculum, and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at co-fi.com slash southpawpod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you. This is Sam. This is Caroline. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, we have writer and sex worker, Caroline. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me on. Since the topic for today's episode is sex work, can we start by having you explain to us what sex work is? Sure. Sex work basically is any job that involves the provision of sexual services. So like you can imagine it covers quite a few different types of work, like stripping, phone sex operators erotic massage, porn, and like with porn, there's like the more traditional kinds. And then I guess more emerging things like with online camming, OnlyFans, things like that. And it also covers what gets called full service sex work, which is basically providing sex itself in exchange for money. And within this, it can be people working as like an independent operator or it can be people working through an agency or within a brothel. When it comes to me, I started out stripping. I've done some private full service work, but most of my sex work experience is brothel based. So a lot of the time when I'm talking about sex work, especially things like talking about the laws around it, I'll say sex work, but what I mean, what I'm referring to is usually full service sex work. So you mentioned stripping. Would other sex workers you know who do full service or work in a brothel or are independent operators, have you noticed many of them have come from stripping? Um, some do. I think it really can depend on where you are. I think in bigger cities where there's more strip clubs and more brothels, there's much more crossover. 
I started stripping living in a city where like there was a lot of strip clubs. I'm now living in a smaller, like more regional area where there's the closest strip club is in another state. Um, so there's not a huge amount of crossover where I am now, but I think that's more just dependent, that's more based on geography. There still is some crossover. But yeah, I think a lot of people in the sex industry have worked in more than one area. And where you live, brothels, sex work, is it legal? Um, yeah, I'm living in one of the few places in the world where sex work, is, where full service sex work is decriminalized. Um, later on, I can sort of, I guess, expand on the difference between decriminalization and legalization because it's something a lot of people get confused about. And when you just hear the words, I guess decriminalization doesn't sound better, but it is the legal model that is supported by sex worker peer groups and most human rights groups. So I'm really lucky in that sense. I only bring that up right now to possibly connect the dots that based on where you live, there might not need to be funnels, let's say to brothels or agencies, because it is decriminalized. So it might be easier to become aware of places where you can go to do sex work like that. Whereas where I live in the United States, it might be more obscure and harder to find. And so then you might need to get there through some other adjacent work initially. Yeah, definitely. And I also, I guess there's like, there's still a lot of stigma around full service sex work, but where I am, you can enter it without the fear of arrest. Whereas a lot of other places like stripping is going to be a more appealing option if it's available to someone based on the fact that it's often legal. So I think that's probably a big thing too in like why more people might go straight to full service sex work here. So if we zoom out and think of this more mechanically as far as the model of work that it is, it seems to parallel creative work or even personal fitness trainer work, especially where you are because it's decriminalized. So as in you can be the worker working for an entrepreneur, let's say an agency or a brothel, or you can work for yourself and be the entrepreneur, self-employed operator, if you will. Would you say this is accurate? Yeah, I think it does parallel it in a lot of ways. Like in the way the industry is structured, um, I think especially with fitness and with the sex industry, a lot of the time, even if you're working for someone else, you're not technically an employee. And that can come with, I guess, a whole host of sort of things about it can make you easy to exploit in the same way a lot of people in the fitness industry can be exploited and we can really gain a lot I guess as far as sex worker rights come by looking at how this works in other industries with high levels of contractors and how they sort of address it and organize um, but I think it also parallels um, the creative and fitness industries in other ways like these industries seem to be ones where like an individual's, I guess, worth or value is tied not just by them, but maybe by like people, I guess, viewing them. 
to their income in ways that doesn't always happen with other industries. Like you see a lot, especially online, I think a lot of aspirational stuff with people in the fitness industry, like hustle really hard, work really hard, um, and you can make heaps. And if you're not succeeding, it's not because it's an industry that's set up in a way that most people can't succeed. It's because you're not trying hard enough or somehow like you as an individual are a failure. I think that also can be an aspect of the sex industry, like this idea that you can enter it and hustle really hard and make money fast. And if you're not, there's something wrong. But like there's no industry where everybody is going to do well in. Like most industries, most people are not going to be making a lot of money. And there just seems to be a thing that like in some industries, we recognize that in other industries, I guess, that are more competitive, that doesn't seem to be recognized as much. And it makes it, I think, harder for people to organize, for people to, I guess, I think it can make solidarity harder even in some ways, like this idea that you yourself just have to work harder as opposed to you have to organize with other people in your position. And again, I think looking at other industries that have a similar structure is really, really useful for people in the sex industry when it comes to sort of organizing and looking at um, things that have worked and things that haven't worked. So bootstrapping and rugged individualism also exists in the sex work industry. Yes. And I think... As much as I guess social media has helped us and helps us get our voices out, I think you also see some of that. Like we have grifters, like there's people who will be online and I don't know how long they worked in the sex industry for, but it will be like they'll basically have things where they'll offer to, I guess, coach people wanting to enter the sex industry which of course can be a legitimate thing, like someone mentoring you can be a really good, useful thing. But when you've got people like asking huge amounts of money for services that are like sometimes downright bizarre, it's, I guess, really quite concerning. And I know it happens in a lot of industries. Like it's the same with the fitness industry. There'll be people who'll be like, give me all this money and I'll coach you and you'll like, quadruple your income but I think when it happens in the sex industry it's kind of I guess more insidious like it's oftentimes preying on people who are really marginalized and it can be bizarre things I saw someone doing something it was like send her a photo of yourself and she'll basically photoshop it to show you what plastic surgery you should have to be successful which is don't get plastic surgery hoping you're going to make heaps of money in the sex industry because, like, that's not a great idea. That's a big output that might not benefit you. And it's just I've seen a growth in things like that that is quite worrying. So they might come up with unusual ideas about how to improve your business or how to make more money that doesn't sound grounded in anything or from your experience is not grounded in anything yet they target people who might be susceptible to this information especially 
targeting people who might have, let's say, low self-esteem. Yeah, definitely. And it's not a problem just in the sex industry, but it's a problem that, I mean, I think as sex workers, we should be addressing when we see it come up in the sex industry. I think in sex work, you're addressing so many other things. The typical grifter stuff gets ignored. Yeah. And I mean, it's also, I guess, easy to, when you've been in the industry for a long time, easy to sort of shrug off or laugh at because it does come across as, I guess, ridiculous sometimes. But if they're doing it, I'm assuming that there's people who are giving them money for it and things like um, that could be really legitimate, like mentoring people. If you're entering the sex industry, it really is a good idea to get some sort of advice in that from people who have worked. And it's, I guess, I want people to have the tools if they're doing that to know, to be able to see the difference between someone who is a grifter and someone who is providing like a legitimate service. Now, going back to parallels, to further clarify what I meant earlier with creative work or personal fitness trainer work, and by creative work, I mean like, let's say artists. And this is a topic that's come up in leftist circles before about what is an artist. And the confusion comes in, in that their relationship to their labor is different from a lot of people in that they have direct connection to their labor so they could make something or do something with their labor and directly monetize that, or they could work through an intermediary. So they do art for a company and then they get paid through that company. So an artist has those two different avenues. And sex work also seems to parallel that where you can work for an agency or you can work as an independent operator. But being parallel in that one aspect does not mean one for one the same. So what are some of the legalities of sex work depending on the type of sex work? And you alluded to this earlier. So could you further expand on that? Um, so I guess I don't know the full legalities of, I guess, each type of sex work in different places. I do know like in a lot of countries, Stripping is legal, and even in Australia, like, I mean, when you say stripping is legal, different states will have different ways they regulate it. There'll be different licenses available, so there'll be places where stripping is you watch the strippers you can't touch. Where I worked, it was, um, which came as a really a massive shock to me because I started stripping as soon as I turned 18, and everything I knew came from American TV and movies, basically, where I worked and I guess is a case in a lot of strip clubs in Australia, a private dance involves touching, not all parts of the body, but you're on their lap, they're touching you, which is there's places where that wouldn't be legal. But even when it comes to full service sex work, there's, le there's different legal models Australia, I guess, is an interesting example because, like, obviously it's regulated by the states and just within the one country, we have several different legal models within different states. You were mentioning earlier about decriminalization versus legalization. Could you explain what that means for people who might not know what that means? 
Yeah. So basically, legalization is legalization models legalize some sorts of sex work while keeping, well, anything that hasn't been legalized is still criminalized. So if I were to go a little bit further north, I would be in Queensland where they have a licensing model where I could work legally, but if I didn't work within that model, I would be at risk of arrest and they actually have a specific task force, like police task force regulating that who can do things like make bookings with sex workers to catch them out working outside of the law and arrest them. And it's things like like if you're working privately, you can work on your own. You cannot work with another worker if you do like a double booking together, you're at risk of arrest, which is like why, who's that hurting? Why criminalise that? Um, Things like if you don't use protection, you're at risk of arrest. And I think a lot of people sort of see that and think, okay, well, that's fair enough. People should be using protection. And like obviously they should be. I want sex workers to work as safely as possible. If for some reason they're not, I don't want them to be arrested for that. And it sets up a thing where, like, I don't want police ringing up sex workers, making fake bookings with them, getting them to say they'll go without a condom so they can arrest them. That's just targeting a marginalised group of people. It's not based on wanting the best occupational health and safety for sex workers. That is purely based on wanting to target sex workers and wanting to punish sex workers. Whereas decriminalisation, it decriminalises sex works. It doesn't make it a free-for-all like a lot of people think. It makes us more like any other industry. We're still regulated, but we're regulated at a local government level, not by the police. And the reason why New South Wales decriminalised in the 90s was there was a Royal Commission into police corruption and it unsurprisingly found that police were targeting sex workers. Um, Sex workers were experiencing, like, violence at the hands of police and the only way to stop this was to basically remove police from the equation. So... I work in a licensed brothel. It's licensed by the local council. Each local council sets its own rules around it. Where I am, brothels have to be in industrial zones. And I have actually done this. If I were to work with a group of other sex workers in a residential area, just in someone's house, I can be shut, and we were shut down by local council, but it wasn't a police thing. We weren't arrested for it it still was not I mean it still wasn't good being like shut down but it I guess serves as a barrier between us and the police and like reduces the risk of violence there things like I guess using condoms and that instead of it being like a thing where if you don't use it you risk arrest it's um, 
most places in order to work there you have to provide a health certificate if i don't provide a, if i don't have um three monthly health checks and provide a certificate i can't work where i am but i don't have police trying to find a way to arrest me if i'm not doing those things i use comdoms where i am sex workers have a massive vested interest in maintaining our sexual health like we want to be on top of it we don't need to have the threat of arrest in order for us to do the right thing we just need safe access to services that allow us to do the right thing and there was a study it's about 10 years old now by um the Kirby Institute on Sexual Health comparing um the different models among different states and it found in New South Wales with decriminalization to have the best worker health outcomes so this topic came up in the United States with marijuana the question of decriminalization versus legalization but with sex work especially where you are it seems like the inverse of here where here is kind of like a spectrum where legalization creates the most amount of freedom and then decriminalization less so but in sex work where you are it's the other way right decriminalization gives you more freedom and legalization gives you more restrictions am i understanding you correctly yeah definitely and i think that's probably part of the reason why people get so confused over the terms um like even just listening to the words legalization sounds better than decriminalization um but it's when you decriminalize sex work that it becomes i guess really truly legal um legalization models are where they have just legalized aspects of the sex industry and something i wanted to go into before and completely missed was it really creates a two-tier system where the most marginalized sex workers still face risk of arrest um in states in australia that have legalization models where if you're not working in a licensed premises or as a private worker in a way that has been made legal you still risk arrest both Victoria and Queensland have these models and both have a lot of illegal brothels and of course it's often the more marginalized sex workers working in the brothels that are still not run legally so there's still people risking arrest and the people still risking arrest are often the people who are already marginalized so it sounds like decriminalization in this case is much more of a broad general blanket type of policy whereas legalization is very specific all of this is still not okay but this specific thing yeah is legal if you do it this yeah. specific way is legal yeah that's sort of definitely how it is whereas decriminalization is i guess taking it out of criminal law and putting it into i guess civil law and under the legalization model if you're not working in an approved way you do face a risk of arrest under decriminalization if you're not working in an approved way you face 
being shut down by the local council, basically. But you're not jailed or anything like that? Yeah, no. Although that said, like, there's still big problems. Like, um, I can sit here and say I'm not going to face arrest. I can't be locked up for being a sex worker. There's still immigration raids where sex workers are locked up in immigration detention. I don't think sitting here and going, yeah, but they're not being arrested and put in jail for being sex workers is like not the point. They are being locked up and they're being targeted because they're sex workers. Whether it's immigration detention or a prison is really besides the point. So it's still really not a perfect system. There's still loopholes. Yeah, there's still loopholes, and those loopholes will still be used to target marginalized people. So it sounds like there's a lot of interchange of these terms, and they're very loose terms where they're more like working definitions, as you pointed out. But in general, it seems like legalization is much more conditional. Decriminalization is less conditional. Yep. And hearing a little bit about your story then, did sex work or thinking about your rights as a laborer Is this what got you into left-wing politics or did that start earlier or independently? I think, I guess, I well, I grew up in a really left-wing home. So I guess I grew up having some sort of, I guess, I grew up like with some understanding of like left-wing politics and that. But I think... Definitely was working in a strip club that really, I guess, cemented how I feel about industrial rights and probably, I guess, connected uh, left-wing sort of ideas around labor to my own experiences. So you had theories before and then once you were working and especially in work that is much more contract work, so might not have the same protections as salaried work, you're like, oh, here's all the exploitation that I had previously thought about abstractly yeah definitely what are some of the things sex work advocates are fighting for um that's it can i guess change a lot based on where you are in a lot of the world people are fighting still to be able to work without the risk of arrest and a lot of that is fighting to even be able to work safely and not have that used as evidence against them in a lot of the US and also in um, one state in Australia where it's still criminalised, things like condoms can be used as evidence against sex workers. So not only do you risk arrest just for working, steps you take to work safely can then be used against you. Speaking of that, what can be used against you, one of the things I've always thought was so immoral is when they have these undercover operations where a police officer might pretend to be a client will have sex with a sex worker and then arrest them. And it very much resembles sexual assault because that is not what the sex worker consented to. They were consenting to work and you did something else. You betrayed that trust. And yet in the criminal court system here in the US, the police officer is the good guy And the sex worker is doubly assaulted, really, because not only were they sexually assaulted, but also then criminally charged and now face severe consequences. Yeah, definitely. And I would I would like straight out call that sexual assault. You're consenting to sex on certain terms. 
a police officer withholding information from you that would that if you knew would completely change whether you consented or not yeah that's straight out sexual assault it shouldn't be allowed and yet police are being paid to do that they're being paid to basically um assault sex workers yeah assault sex workers and it goes i mean i think it really shows how no matter what someone thinks about sex work whether people want sex work to exist or not giving police more powers is only ever going to hurt sex workers like they're not doing that they're not like entrapping sex workers because they're worried about their well-being because they want them to find another line of work they're doing it to assault target and violate someone who's already vulnerable and in doing so they're also giving this person a criminal record that's going to make it harder for them to find other sorts of work if they did want to leave the sex industry and I think I can't really emphasize enough how how much I think police will use any laws even if they're sort of written with sex worker welfare in mind if there's a way to abuse those laws and target sex workers, it will happen. Yeah, it reinforces this dangerous dehumanizing belief that it is impossible to assault a sex worker. And going back to what you just said earlier about people who are marginalized, racialized, they're already dehumanized. And so then it is doubly even more so something that they face the consequences of, of being dehumanized Instead of the police officer going to jail for sexual assault, it is they who end up going to jail. And it doesn't occur to a lot of people that this is a human being. This is the victim, not the police officer. Yeah. And like, I mean, it doesn't take much to realize that there are the people who the police are going to be targeted. Like, I guess the more marginalized you already are, the higher the chance that you're going to sort of be the person that the police will target and I think you're right like a lot of people maybe there's like this huge disconnect where the sex worker being arrested is just seen as I guess almost this character not as this person whose life is being torn apart who's going through trauma I mean watch any American show with police and it's just such a background thing for in the police station for them to be booking sex workers that like you almost like watch it and it's just doesn't even really register it's just such a common thing for it to be there yeah that definitely makes it worse and it's also saying that's the most common type of criminal or the most common type of quote unquote degenerate in society Yeah, and like it's almost this thing where people are like, yeah, well, sex workers get arrested is what happens, whereas like arrest is a traumatic experience for anyone when it comes to sex workers being arrested. It's almost just this stereotype and it shouldn't come with, like it should not have to come with the job. It shouldn't come with the job for anyone. It's portrayed so casually. Like, of course, that's what one does when you're a police officer you harass and arrest sex workers all day. Yeah. And I mean, there's probably people who become, well, there's definitely people who become police officers because that's what they want to do. 
did you want to finish your thoughts about what sex work advocates are fighting for? So in a lot of other places, sex worker advocates are actually, as well as having to fight against being criminalized, they're having to fight against the rescue industry itself, which is an industry with, I guess, a fair bit of money in it built on rescuing sex workers, whether they want to be rescued or not. A lot of the times it's Westerners with, I guess, sometimes religious reasons for wanting to go into um, places and sort of save people who they don't agree with what they're doing. It's, I guess, an extension of the white saviour complex that a lot of the times is really doesn't help local sex workers. I mean, basically, everywhere the sex workers has sex worker peer groups. If you want to know about what sex workers like in any country want, because obviously everyone experiences different um, different things and um, is oppressed in different ways, has different um, ways that they need to fight for workers' rights. But most places or all places the best people to listen to are sex workers and sex worker peer organisations. Um, so if you're looking at like Thailand, for example, there's Empower, which is run by sex workers. You can, if you want to know about sex work in Thailand, they have a website you can access. But a lot of people instead will be listening to, I guess, rescue industry groups who go in there with a preconceived notion of what's the best thing for sex workers without really listening to them. And it just adds another sort of burden to what sex workers there have to face and have to fight. And then there's things like in New South Wales where I am at the moment, there's a bill to add sex work to the Anti-Discrimination Act, which basically will make it, in theory at least, illegal to discriminate against sex workers when accessing housing, when applying for non-sex work jobs and things like that. And I mean, we all know that something being like it being illegal to discriminate against a group of people doesn't mean that they won't be discriminated against. But I mean, I guess it's at least acknowledgement that we are discriminated against and that it shouldn't be happening. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, Please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. One that I find really interesting, and I've sort of on and off tried to keep up with what's happening in different countries, is sham contracting. And I guess how it's been fought in the courts in different countries because like most of us are class if we're working for other people we're classed as contractors and for a lot of us that means working under a sham contract 
and that goes for strip clubs as well. So in the US, there's been quite a few cases where strippers have taken um, employers to court and challenged their um, status as a contractor and have been recognised as employees and being awarded back pay for wages that they were never paid. Because basically in a brothel or a strip club, you don't have like a wage. You're paid a cut of each job, um, which as a contractor is how it works. But you're also a lot of the time expected to work a roster like an employee would which means you can, and it happens, work entire shifts and not make any money. If you're working somewhere that charges a house fee, you can work entire shifts and end up with less money than you started with. And it probably happens more than people think. And in places that charge a house fee, you can end up with less money at the end of the shift than you started with. And um, strippers have successfully gone to court and fought this and won back pay for their rostered on hours. Globally, COVID has had an impact on workers in many industries. So how has it affected sex workers? Well, like everyone else, a lot of us weren't able to work during lockdowns. Um, But because of the nature of the work, a lot of the time people weren't able to access some of the support payments that were available in places that provided these. Um, So basically in Australia, we were quite lucky. Um, Unemployment benefits were doubled for a while. So most sex sex workers who were unable to work but were able to get unemployment benefits did get those at the higher rate. But people in other industries who didn't lose their jobs but were unable to work during lockdown, had access to something else called a JobKeeper payment, which was why I think 500 more a fortnight than unemployment benefits were and most sex workers weren't able to access that. Um, And then, of course, there were sex workers who couldn't work, who weren't eligible for any sort of payments. Scarlet Alliance, which is a peer organisation in Australia, did have a fund that you could donate to that to help sex workers who weren't able to work but didn't have any access to any other form of income. And I don't know, like, country by country how it was. I know, like, a lot of places, people, whether they were sex workers or not, struggled a lot more during lockdowns than us. But I think sex work stigma meant that probably a lot more could have been done to support sex workers and wasn't. Well, if it's criminalised also... You can't report what kind of work you did, so you couldn't get any help, like in the US or in other countries. Yeah, exactly. So like any sort of payment for people losing income was just not at all available. And I think things like that means that people are put in this position where they have no money, where they're then having to make really hard decisions around sort of what to do and what risks to take. And I think the thing is, and like what's come out and what is completely unsurprising to me as a sex worker is sex workers do want to do the right thing regarding health and safety and we're really proactive in doing that. But criminalising us and stigmatising us makes it much harder. 
And so in Australia now, in a lot of places, we're back at work. I think Victoria at the moment is in another lockdown where I am with sex work's been back reopened for nearly a year. And I think just how we operate with sort of the threat of COVID is just another example of why it's so important for us to be able to operate legally. Um, so Australia's doing quite well regarding COVID numbers and part of a big part of that is the contact tracing that we have in place. If you go to any sort of business, you sort of sign in with the QR code, your details are kept securely for a certain amount of time. And if anyone who's had COVID goes there, you'll be contacted and all that, which um, where I work, we're able to do. In South Australia, where sex work's still illegal, they can't do that. And that's a really unfair burden to put on sex workers. Like, we want to work safely. We want to be informed if we've been exposed to COVID. And the only way that that can happen is if we can work without the risk of arrest and without the risk of clients being arrested. And I would say that I guess the other big thing with COVID that I guess I've been thinking about is vaccine eligibility. I know in parts of India and in parts of Canada, making vaccines available to sex workers is being treated as a priority. I think I'm like in the second last group of people who will become eligible for a vaccine here. Oh, so you're not in any special category. Yeah, and types of work like, um, and because sex work hasn't been put in sort of like a category of type of work that's high risk, even though it's kind of impossible to do our job socially distanced, it means unless we already fit another category, we're not eligible for vaccines until quite late. And then you had mentioned earlier that some people where you are were not eligible to get assistance from the government, even though they were working above board as a sex worker? Yeah, like I guess people, and this didn't just impact um, sex workers, I think it was people who get a disability support payment, for some reason that wasn't increased, even though lots of people who get disability support payments also work because the payment itself is really not a living wage. Um, so it meant sex workers with like a disability recognised by the government were not able to work but also didn't get an increase in their weekly payments. So basically, if you were getting disability, then you didn't qualify to get any extra payment? Um, I think there was like one or two kind of like small lump sum payments, but they didn't qualify for like a sort of ongoing weekly increase, which would have helped people a lot more with things like rent and groceries and basic living expenses. And I mean, even under decriminalisation, not everyone's working above board. Or even people working above board, uh, like a lot of people working as international students, there was really not anything done to support international students who suddenly were stuck here, often without many family ties and unable to work. So it also had to do with immigration status. Yep. 
a lot had to do with that. So obviously, like, again, the people who were hit hardest or who were, like, given the least support were also people who already were um, marginalised based on their immigration status, which is not just in the sex industry. It's, like, obviously an ongoing thing under capitalism where, like, it's marginalised groups who are hit the hardest. I think in an attempt to push back against stigma, there's been a narrative to make sex work a form of empowerment. But if sex work is work under capitalism, I don't know if any work is empowering, right? What are your thoughts on this, that sex work is empowerment? Um, I have lots of thoughts on this. And I guess also... I know my thoughts are not always shared by all sex workers and I sort of want to preface it with like I have issues with some of the narratives around empowerment but I don't have issues with individual sex workers sort of saying they find the work empowering. Um, I personally, I guess based a lot also on my political views is I wouldn't call it empowering itself um, because to me, for something to be empowering, there really has to be some sort of structural change. And sex work, I mean, gives me the ability to like pay my rent, gives me an ability to live in a way that I wouldn't otherwise be able to. It's not changing the material conditions that underpin my life or that underpins workers' lives. And I'm still, I'm glad it's an option for me. Like, I do prefer being able to pay my rent and buy food. But then I look at it and I go, is that really what I want to call empowerment? And, like, not even just in the sex industry. I think in general there seems to be a growing trend towards a really neoliberal definition of empowerment where sort of all the focus is on individual success, either financially or even just like how you feel about yourself. But who does that, I guess, really help? I definitely feel good when I've been broke, being able to have money. And I think there's times too where I've been like, yeah, it feels really empowering. Like when I've not had money to actually have money. And when you've always struggled and you don't have a whole heap of options to make more than minimum wage earning an amount that allows you to not feel suffocated by financial stress is a massive weight lifted off your, off your shoulders. And, I mean, I could call that empowerment, but it's not changing anything more than just my specific circumstances at this one time. I mean, you're still living in a society where you're having to sell your labour to meet needs that should be basic human rights like housing and in many cases things like healthcare costs and without sex work I couldn't afford those things but that doesn't mean I want my self-worth or how people value me to be tied to things like how much I can earn and I'm I guess I'm really uncomfortable with the sort of neoliberal empowerment measure of success for a lot of reasons like and part of it is life isn't a meritocracy. Career success is a lot of the time tied up with privilege. And even though the sex industry is a way for more marginalised people to make a living, it, it also doesn't exist in a vacuum. There's a lot of factors that play in 
to how successful someone will be in the sex industry, which is not to say that you can't make a lot of money starting from nothing, but most people aren't going to get rich. Seems to me that neoliberal empowerment also is about making your job, not just sex work, but just work in general, your identity. What I mean by that is, let's say you go to a party, maybe I don't remember somebody's name, I don't remember a lot about them, but I'll remember what they do for a job, right? So I might ask, what's your name? It goes in one ear, out the other. Then I ask, what do you do? Then I'll remember this person as the doctor, as the accountant, as the lawyer. So we've already been pushed to see jobs as who we are rather than who we are as individuals or as human beings. So it seems like then empowerment is about like thinking of your identity as a sex worker and then using that to feel more empowered about yourself. Yeah, definitely. And I think with sex work, it comes with so many connotations and a lot of them really negative connotations that if you go to a party and you introduce yourself as a sex worker, that person that you're introducing yourself to is likely going to form a whole lot of opinions of you based on that and even like sort of I guess a natural reaction to all the negative connotations is to embrace the positive and be like no I am empowered I like I'm an empowered sex worker and some people are some people that is what they've always wanted to do but it's really pigeonholing you putting you into a small box yeah it is it's sort of it's giving you like two options where you're either like the disempowered sex worker or the super empowered sex worker and there's not a lot of space for being the person who does sex work as a job but has a whole lot of other things about them too. And yeah, I think like what you said, like it really pigeonholes people a lot and I mean, just to go back quickly to the neoliberal kind of empowerment, a lot of it's too, and it ties into what you just said, is really about changing your mindset. Like either sex work is degrading and awful or sex work is great and empowering. A binary. Yeah. And that doesn't leave a whole heap of space. That doesn't leave a whole heap of space for you as a person. Yeah. Yeah. And it really, it doesn't even leave like a lot of space for like your feelings to fluctuate. Like it's really weird. Like what other job does somebody either hate all the time or love all the time? I think as a sex worker, if you're sort of in a public setting talking to people who are not sex workers, the empowerment or the disempowerment narrative, both of them really pigeonhole you. And they pigeonhole you, I guess, to make other people feel more comfortable. Like people want sex work to be empowering because they want to support us, but they don't want to feel like uncomfortable about, I guess, negative aspects of the work or they are very uncomfortable with sex work existing. So they want it to be disempowering. Um, it's, I think, the empowerment narrative as much as the disempowerment narrative, a lot of the time comes down to making other people feel comfortable and doesn't give us a whole lot of space to really be complete people in other people's eyes. There seems to be two things going on. The first thing is wanting to make you static, 
like whatever you feel about sex work, once you make that decision, then that's it. Going forward, you either love it or hate it. You can't ever be fluid with how you feel about it. It can't be something that's always in flux. Like how we get to be about everything else, which in itself is problematic because we understand that for other people, but for sex workers, it's another form of subtle dehumanization. The second point then that you're explaining and describing is of seeing sex workers as a sympathetic character. Again, dehumanization, not as a person, but some kind of character, like a cancer patient. And I want to hear that you're doing okay, right? Oh, I got cancer, but I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Are you sure? I'm so sorry. No, no, no. I'm I'm good. I'm good. Oh, Oh, okay. And having had people in my family who had cancer, so many of the times I had to make other people feel better about me dealing with people who were sick in my family. And they were turning it around and making it about them and making it about me having to use my emotional energy to make them feel better. And it seems like that is how they're seeing sex workers. I think that's historic, like this idea of grouping, quote unquote, lepers, like if we're getting biblical or going into historic, especially Western civilization, this idea of lepers and quote unquote prostitutes, they were always lumped together, right? And in what you're describing, it makes sense because they're both seen as this type of being that makes me feel bad when I see them. So then I want to know that they're permanently okay. They're permanently happy with things or it's the other way. And it adds to my cynicism and that's done. You've reinforced my view of the world that the world is shit. And none of this leaves room for you to be a person. You're just characters in my mind, your characters in my story, right? And it's really about me. I'm the subject. I have subjectivity. You're an object. I observe you and I project things onto you and I want you to reinforce it. Yeah, that it makes a lot of sense, especially like the emotional energy that you then sort of, I guess, have to put into navigating other people's feelings around your work and making them comfortable or not saying things that will make them uncomfortable or make them have to question their stance on sex work, which is like a weird thing when you compare it to other types of work. Like I've had conversations with people where they found out I'm a sex worker and the automatic thing is to assume that I'm like, I guess because I've had any involvement in sex worker rights, things and that, to think I'm like this like super, yes, I love being a sex worker all the time. It's so empowering. It's great because I'm talking about sex worker rights. Um, And when you like just imagine that reaction to finding out someone talking about industrial rights in any other industry, you kind of see how bizarre it is. Like sex worker rights should not be based on whether we love our job or not, whether someone loves their job or not. They deserve industrial rights and industrial rights will make their job and their life better. Yeah. It's like if you hate it, should you not have rights then? Yeah. It's definitely sort of that. And it's like, you even get it from people who have socialist leanings who can sort of, who have an understanding will be like, oh, I can support sex worker rights if they really want to do it, but I'm not comfortable with people doing it just because they have to. Seems like a lot of people bring their own baggage to this. Yeah, completely. And I think 
that baggage really gets pushed onto the narratives that, well, the narratives that we're expected to tell and the narratives that we're sort of told you're allowed to have this narrative or that narrative because they're the ones that we can understand without having to really question ourselves. But I want to bring this up when talking about, I guess, empowerment is I don't, like, well, I don't think that I guess under capitalism any sort of work or almost any sort of work can be inherently empowering. I think as sex workers, we're automatically politicised, like our existence is politicised. And not only that, a lot of us come, a lot of us also have other identities that are politicised. And I think I don't want people to think I'm saying that sex workers can't do empowering things or that as sex workers, we shouldn't sort of celebrate our existence and be proud and be like, I am an unapologetic sex worker. I think you can be that and also be aware and, I guess, critical of work under capitalism. It kind of relates to the conversation I recently had with Dr. Jennifer McLaren about female athletes in the UFC, so female combat sports athletes, and this question of actually empowerment, this idea of women being able to beat men in a fight or in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, why that captivates people. And she said, the fact that it's just so novel to begin with, that you think that's empowering is in itself a problem. Because why is it so novel? Why is this such a thing for you? So then what is your default? What is your starting view of these women or of women in general? And because she's a critical feminist scholar, she's not just talking specifically about combat sports workers or women in the UFC, but she's just speaking broadly about how empowerment is often just a code word for finding things very novel and bizarre. Will you get a look at that? I had this idea, and then it's this other way, right? And she's saying that that starting point and always having that as your reference point, because you have to maintain that as your reference point to keep thinking this as novel, right? Because the moment you think it's normal and it's no longer novel, then it's no longer empowering because it's just a thing. It's just work, right? It's just something that happens. And holding on to that is in itself reinforcing a lot of the structures that oppresses people. Yeah. I think that's sort of like a really spot on comparison. And something, I guess, that ties into that that I've noticed a lot lately because OnlyFans, I think especially since the pandemic, has grown. And I've got to preface this by saying I've never worked online. I've never done any sort of that. But I see a lot of, I guess, stuff online from people who aren't sex workers are like holding it up as this really empowering thing because a woman can go on there and sometimes make a lot of money fast and I think that really ties into the things like that's novel like it's maybe people think that's empowering because it's people who are not who no one expects to make that amount of money and who don't have 
I guess the avenues to make a lot of money fast is say a university educated man, which isn't to say that there's not university educated men or women on OnlyFans. But I think anything that gives earning potential to people that have traditionally been excluded from more mainstream ways to earn money is somewhat novel. But I think also if we like uncritically look at it as empowering, we really risk not addressing, um, not only not addressing issues that may exist in it, but also not recognising that it's still work and it's still hard work. I think in people's desire to be sort of sex positive and celebrate sex workers who are doing well, they need to not fall into the trap of not recognising that it's still really hard labour and that it still isn't something that everyone who does it, no matter how hard they work, is going to succeed at. And because you also, when you don't acknowledge that, you even risk giving fuel to people who want to denigrate it for the same reasons that you want to celebrate it. Like all the men who are like, you know, all the sort of jokes or the like looking down on women like who work on OnlyFans and you'll see like men being like, oh, they can just stick some naked photos up and have all these people throw money at them yet they think that like men aren't oppressed. Whereas it's obviously not that easy. I was reading an interview with someone who works on OnlyFans and she makes she makes 100000 a year, which is really good money. But she doesn't take weekends. I think about four hours a day each day is spent just replying to messages from her subscribers. And I think I brought that up when I I brought that up when I was talking to I was in conversation with a man I knew who was sort of running down OnlyFans as like, oh women can just make money really fast on there. They don't know how easy they have it. And his response was so that's just sitting there answering like messages. That's not real work. And I was like, um, you would recognize it as real work if it was anything other than a sex worker doing it. Like if you're working in an office answering messages for four hours a day, it's real work. It's There's like a lot of work that goes into any form of sex work. And if you're even trying to be supportive of sex workers by just celebrating the good, it can sometimes give fuel to people who want to tear sex workers down. There are many types of jobs that you should go into with caution. Not all jobs are appropriate for everyone. But sometimes we do jobs not because it's right for us, but because we need to work. With that said, would you say there are things one should think about before considering sex work? Um, Yeah, definitely. I think people should consider how they think they'll feel about it. But I also know that sometimes you just need a job. I would say there's also things that people should do. Um, Like I said earlier, most places have some sort of peer sex worker project or like outreach. I think it's really good to try and find what's in your area and reach out and also to familiarise yourself with the laws around sex work wherever you are because even though for most people – they will not be able to work legally. It's still, I think, good to know, to be on top of what the laws are. 
I guess this will come up sort of in um, stigma and respectability politics is it's like a really double-sided thing. Like the things you have to consider when you enter sex work are also a lot of the times part of the reason why you're entering sex work, if that makes sense. Not 100%. But- well, things like mental health. Like if I say to someone, you really should consider your mental health and if you suffer from mental health problems, is this the industry for you? Is like really in the context of sex work, not necessarily helpful advice because I think sometimes barriers to accessing other forms of employment when you have mental health problems, also why people go into sex work. Going back to what you said about disability. Yeah. So like it's really, I guess you have to find the balance by like consider these things, but when you put too much emphasis on is this really the right industry for someone who's young or who's got mental health problems, it's also you risk venturing into stigmatizing them or venturing into like the respectability politics where it's like you kind of are shutting people who need the sex industry out. Can you tell us about organizing sex workers? Yeah, there's some places we'll have sex worker unions. Um, In Australia, we don't actually have a sex worker union union at the moment. The Scarlet Alliance, which is the peer representative body for sex workers, they don't do actual unions things. Like they don't negotiate between employees and their workplaces. They more represent us on a national level with regards to laws around sex work and media representation of sex workers and things like that. And then we have, like I mentioned earlier, different state groups like in New South Wales, there's SWAP, who do outreach work with sex workers with regarding like our health and our safety and laws and that but again they're not a union um there has been at different times um pushes for an actual sex worker union which would be a really really good thing but for multiple reasons some similar to the reasons why it's getting harder and harder to unionize in other industries and some i guess specific to the sex industry it's not something that has happened yet and it's something that I think can only happen with a lot of like hard work and difficulty but that does need to happen. Is there an intersection of feminism and sex work? Um, I think there's really two ways it intersects. There's the competing arguments around basically whether sex work is feminist or not and then the ways that sex work stigma intersects with other ways that women are marginalized and what this means for feminists. So for the first part, you'll get Swerfs arguing that sex work is inherently anti-feminist and a form of violence against women. And then on, I guess, the other end of the spectrum, I've seen people argue that putting a price on things that men often feel entitled to for free is a feminist act. I sort of feel like both arguments are far too simplistic, reactionary, and basically trying to squash the politics of sex work into someone's existing belief system. I think the root of Swerf ideology is based around really quite sexist and conservative views around sex and the emotional labor of women. I've seen it argued that sex work is degrading because some clients view it similar to fast food, i.e. you go in, you get what you want, but it's quick, not hugely expensive, and then you're on your way, as opposed to spending a longer period of time with someone and building a real connection. And I mean, I could laugh when I think things like that. It's basically my preferred way of working. Um, the emotional labor side of sex work is really hard. If I can reduce the amount I have to do, then I'm going to. But then you get like people arguing that 
that type of sex work is more degrading because I may be making less and doing shorter bookings than someone who's like a high-end escort doing really long bookings and building up in like an emotional connection with the clients. And it like it clashes with oftentimes what those same feminists will feel about other works, like other types of work. Like feminists have fought for years to have emotional labor recognized not just as an aspect of labor, but like as a sort of quite difficult skilled aspect of labor. And then you have the same people turn around and say sex work is anti-feminist if it doesn't contain as much of that emotional labor as a non-transactional intimate relationship might. But then I guess at the other end of the spectrum to have people say that like it's putting a price on sex is an inherently feminist act is I think a really sort of liberal feminism that doesn't help sex workers either. The people who are sex workers and what backgrounds we come from, who we are in the rest of our lives, like if you're a feminist who supports the rights of single mothers, you need to support the rights of sex workers because like a lot of us are single mothers and the same for if you're a sex worker who supports trans women or women of color or who claims to support those people you need to also support sex worker rights because most of us do come from I guess intersectional backgrounds where sex work is not the only way that we're marginalized you can't say you're opposed to the the or the other ways that we're marginalized, but you don't support our rights as sex workers. Unpack sex work stigma for us, because it's something you brought up several times. Yeah. Um. So it can come in different forms. There's people who like, I guess, are anti-sex work because they think you're Im- you're like this immoral person for doing it. And they'll just outright look down on you and not hide the fact that they look down on you. And then there's sex work stigma where it's people who are like, you're a victim and you need saving. And I feel like they're also looking down on you, but they're like trying to, I guess, present it in a more benevolent way. But it's still, it's still harmful. And it's, you can't escape the stigma. Like it's a day to day thing. Even just like with deciding who to tell or what to tell people, it's like a big thing. Like it can be really, really isolating as a sex worker when like meeting people, forming friendships with people outside of sex work because you either tell them that you're a sex worker and risk stigma or you lie to them and are sort of constantly worried about being caught out. And I think that's where the barriers that it sort of creates come in um and even in like new south wales where it's decriminalized i was just reading a study where stigma was one of the big barriers preventing um sex workers in sydney from accessing adequate sort of health services or from either reporting exploitative workplaces or reporting crimes committed against them and people will bring up negative mental health among sex workers as an argument against sex work existing but then like most studies on it will link a lot of the like negative mental health outcomes among sex workers to stigma and if you're arguing that the sex industry shouldn't exist and that's like 
you're arguing against sex workers, you're increasing that stigma. How about how sex workers are portrayed in popular media or maybe how they're not portrayed and made not visible? How does that add to the stigma? I think how we're portrayed in popular media is really just always, almost always just like one of a few sort of really two-dimensional stereotypes. And I think I keep going back to the thing where we're either given the narrative of really empowered, of basically just being tragedy porn. And you see that a lot in popular media, like the crime shows where there's the dead sex worker with the either no backstory or just the like backstory that purely exists as basically like a weird voyeuristic thing into like the worst most tragic aspects of someone's life or you have things that show like you know sex workers who are making heaps of money and living this glamorous life there's really really no space ever given to all of the in-between we're rarely portrayed as like complete characters or more like these two-dimensional plot devices and I guess that happens like popular media does rely on stereotypes but when you're stereotyping an already marginalized group who doesn't have the same platforms or visibility as maybe people in other industries you're risking doing a lot of damage because People are watching popular media and basing their views on sex workers on what they see in fictional things. Something you've mentioned before is respectability and sex work. I think when we think about these two things in tandem, it might be a little bit confusing. So can you tell us about respectability politics and sex work? Yeah, like I guess it's respectability politics. Um exists as a problem in sex work like it does in, I guess, most marginalised communities where some people, in trying to fight the stigma they face, perpetuate the stigma or try to separate themselves from the people within the group who they see as representing what they think are the undesirable elements that they don't want to be associated with. And I think it's not even always done consciously or maliciously. Sometimes it is done as like a knee-jerk reaction to the constant, I guess, attack on sex workers. Like a lot of anti-sex work arguments will be based around things like this percentage of sex workers um, are drug users or this percentage have experienced domestic abuse or this percentage experienced child sexual abuse and they'll use that as like arguments against sex work and I think if you're being bombarded with that uh, while you're trying to say like hang on I want to be able to work safely it can be like a really sort of knee-jerk thing to go hey hang on I didn't experience child sexual abuse. Not all of us were abused as children. Some of us want to be sex workers. But the moment you do that, you've just thrown all the sex workers who were abused as children under the bus. And I guess like a lot of us do fit some of those stereotypes and we still have a right to work 
sort of safely. Um, and I think it's just something that people need to be, if you're arguing for sex worker rights, you need to be mindful of, are you only arguing for your right to work or are you arguing for the right for all sex workers to work safely and with, without the risk of arrest? Because people do work to support drug habits. People do work because they have mental health conditions that make it really difficult to work in other industries. Pretending that that isn't the case or saying that those people shouldn't be working throws more marginalised sex workers under the bus. So in thinking about ways that somebody shouldn't do sex work, we're actually unconsciously listing all the reasons why they're doing sex work in the first place. Yeah, I don't think it does sex workers as a whole any favours to pretend that there aren't sex workers who are working because they have very limited opportunities to do other forms of work. And I don't think it, I think it's really discriminatory to say, well, they shouldn't be working. Um, only people who completely freely choose it should be working because that's not how any industry works. Who freely chooses to do any job under capitalism? which isn't to negate anything about sex work. It's more like saying, we understand that for everything else. Why do we not give that same understanding to how sex work should work? Exactly. And even if you are like concerned about people working because they, only, because they have very limited opportunities, taking away an opportunity that they do have or making it harder for them to do that work safely or discriminating against them and stigmatizing them when they do do it, is just limiting their options further. I think another way that respectability politics operate within the sex industry is people drawing lines between different forms of sex work and saying, like, I'm okay with the type of work that I happen to be doing, but not other forms of sex work. Like, maybe if someone is stripping, saying, well, like, stripping's okay, stripping should be legal, but full-service sex work is a different matter. Or someone who works indoors saying like, okay, it's okay to be an escort or to work in a brothel because that's a real job, but I'm not okay with people doing um, street-based sex work. And like always, respectability politics lets down the people who are the more marginalised within those communities. That's basically a general problem with respectability politics as a whole, right? Yeah, definitely. It's really like, okay, except us, if we make ourselves more like you and if we turn our back on the people within our community who are not going to make themselves more like you, it's very much, I guess, less about workers' rights and more about individuals or small groups within a larger group trying to get ahead at the expense of everybody else. Seems like sex work has a lot of overlap with a lot of industries that people, maybe because of the stigma, didn't want to see that it functions very much like other industries and is similar to other jobs. But also in this conversation, we can see that there's also specific things about sex work that makes it unique, that doesn't make it one-for-one -one parallel to everything else. So I hope this was an illuminating conversation for a lot of the people listening and answered a lot of questions because this was really illuminating for me and I got a lot out of this. I learned a lot. 
I probably have more questions from this, but I think because it is something that a lot of people don't know that much about and whatever they do know, maybe they just made it up or got it from popular media. Hopefully then this puts people on a path to do their own research. So I really appreciate you coming on the show and for taking the time to share your knowledge with us and also giving us insight and some of your own experiences in this industry. Thanks so much for having me on. It was a pleasure and I really liked getting the chance to talk about sex worker rights. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pulse, hitting with the left. South Pulse, Sam, Paul, South Pulse, South Pulse.